It's a great resistance of letting you watch the next three minutes as the submarine dives with the Navy hymn in the background. Great cinema, great cinema. And I thought of that movie clip this week from uh, Crimson Tide as I was preparing. And, and just like that sunrise moment with the commander and his XO heading off into the sunrise in their, in their naval submarine and you know, there's, there's beauty and there's poetry, there's purpose. There's, there's just this greatness about this moment. And, and the XO, Denzel Washington, is, is praised by Gene Hackman for not saying anything. Is that a man moment or what? You know, when you can get points for just being quiet. You know, so, so, so he says, bravo, Hunter, you knew when to shut up. He said, most eggheads, because he's an Annapolis grad, most eggheads want to talk it away but you knew to enjoy the moment. And I thought about that because, you know, words sometimes get in the way. And as I've prepared for our study today, I've, I've read plenty of words. But, it, but I don't want to get in the way of Luke 15. Because on its own, it's amazing. And I might come short of calling the, the people that I've been reading, the pastors, teachers, and biblical scholars, I've been careful to call them eggheads, uh, that, that fill empty air with, with purposeless words because they've been good words. But Luke 15 has been called by J.C. Ryle. It was called one of the best-known chapters of the Bible. And he said, few chapters have done more good to the human soul. But here I am, attempting to do as little damage to the beauty of the chapter as I can with my words. So let's pray that I, that I do that. Father God, I thank you for this time together. Be with us as we study your word. May it do what you intended to do. May the words that are from me, Lord, may they be well-driven nails, as Solomon said, that they find their home in the building of the lives of these men. And the words that are from, that are from me, Lord, and not from you, would they be bent nails that fall to the ground to be swept away. I pray for the, the Malaysian brother that Don Fisher shared with me this evening who is, who is in prison. And our heart goes out to him because prison is no, no fun. Prison is challenging. Prison is suffering. Prison is tough. And so we pray that you meet him there and strengthen him there, that he might be a part of our communion in some supernatural way. In your name, amen. So let's read together in Luke chapter 15, if you have your Bibles or phones or iPads with you. 
And I'm going to start with the first three chapters. Or sorry, first three verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So the setting of our chapter, the setting for these parables, is Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes, and the sinners and the tax collectors. The Pharisees and the scribes see Jesus teaching and attracting these sinners and tax collectors, and they're offended. You see, Pharisees and tax collectors are all about holiness and righteousness. And the holiness and righteousness that they pursue, that they obtain, is a separatedness. There's lines drawn in their holiness and their righteousness. They set boundaries. They set boundaries and lines between them and everyone else. And these boundaries, these lines, always end up making them looking, look particularly special. Remembering our theme of, of windows and doors, inside and out, the Pharisees consider themselves, they're the insiders. And the sinners and the tax collectors, these, these people Jesus seems to be attracting, and gathering around him, well, they're outsiders. They're unfit for the kingdom of heaven. So the Pharisees and scribes are grumbling. They're unhappy. They're indignant. They're, they're maybe even angry. So Jesus tells a parable in response to this scene that I've just painted for you. It's a parable. What seems like three parables is really one. The Greek is very specifically singular. And as we'll see, they're meant to build to a critical climax. You can't sever the first two from the third and consider them separately. They're a package. So I have three statements for you to focus on tonight, although it's possible to have dozens of, of lessons from this, this parable, like a great work of art that you can see different things in. This, this, this is a great work of art of Jesus. First, I want you to see the persistence of the Father's longing. The persistence of the Father's longing. Secondly, I want you to feel the joy of the Father's collection the joy of the Father's collection. And lastly tonight, I want you to respond to the invitation into the Father's compassion. The invitation into the Father's compassion. See, in, in, the, in sections 1 and 2 of Luke 15, these first two stages of the parable, we see some common elements. Uh, let me read it really quickly, verses uh, 3 through 10. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who needs no repentance." And verses 8 to 10. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. See, we see some common elements. Something of value is lost. The owner seeks diligently and exhaustively to find it. 
And upon recovery, there is joy and celebration with their friends. Persistence in the Father's longing. Of interest here is this great persistence of God. God is being portrayed as, as the shepherd and as the woman. The persistence of God to claim what belongs to him. See, the souls that are part of God's kingdom, they're called lost. You know, it's not God who needs finding by our inquiring minds or our seeking hearts. And it's not us who seek after him. No, he is the seeker. He is the shepherd. He is the woman who's turning her house upside down. The shepherd who's scanning the fields, looking through the brush until they find what belongs to them. In each case, one thing is lost. One in a hundred, one in ten. And, and I think that's interesting because if we look at our math, it's business owners or, or people in, 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 in our home checkbooks or whatever, percentages are more important. And one out of nine, one out of hundred is one percent, and one out of ten is ten percent. So there's different weights there. But God doesn't count that way. God counts by ones. One coin, one sheep, one soul. Every soul is meant to be every soul meant to be a part of his kingdom, to be called by his name, to be part of the church, each single one will be sought, will be pursued, will be found. Longingly, exhaustively, and even at risk, perhaps. God here takes the initiative in salvation. Jesus said it plainly in Luke 19.10, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's who God is. That's who Jesus is. That's who the Spirit is. Seeking to save. Seeking to find. Seeking to complete the collection. You know, when I was, when I was a kid, um, Gatorade was new. Uh, introduced by the University of Florida, Gatorade. I don't know if you knew that. Side note. And they came with lids on top for a while that, that on the top of the lid had an NFL football helmet. Anybody else remember those? No? Nobody else? Okay, couple. Good. Well, I was determined to collect all, probably at that time, like 22 or 20 Gatorade lids. So I drank a lot of Gatorade. And my mom would drive me into the house and, you know, drive me into different stores. And I remember we were on a vacation. We were driving through, like, Colorado. And I said, let's pull in there. And so there I am drinking Gatorade in the back seat. No wonder I got car sick, right? And I remember the day I got the last one. I think it was the Buffalo Bills. And I could put it up on my little board that I made on the little nail. And boom, I had the whole NFL collection on there. I wonder if I kept those. I don't know where those are. But anyway, and there's something about completing a collection. And that's some of the sense that we got. God is, is all about completing the collection of his saints. God will not forget one of his own. He's done too much already to make me his. He will seek me out. God's not waiting in these examples. He's, he's moving. He's working. There's a tremendous, glorious persistence in the Father's longing. Second point, the Father has great joy in his collecting. Notice the repeated chorus of the joy. The shepherd comes home rejoicing. Both of them say to their friends, rejoice with me. You know, God is joyous. The purpose of eternity is joy. A restored relationship of, of love and, and re reconciliation, redemption. Those are joyous themes. We are the people of joy. He desires us. He created all things for us to know, to, to, for him 
to be known, for him to know us. But notice the insertion of the element of repentance. Coins, shepherds, shepherds, sheep, shepherds, coins, women. Yet he says in verse 7, after the sheep that was lost, I tell you there would be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. Of course, more likely means think they don't need repentance. And the woman too, verse 10, just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Well, wait a minute. Does a, does a coin repent? Does a sheep repent? Put that over here for now. But what happens in the repentance? When the woman finds their coin, when the, when the shepherd finds their sheep, there's great joy. Joy before the angels. Joy in heaven. Over one. Over a single one. The sheep don't repent. The coins don't repent. They're, they're lost. They're inert. Sheep are known as the most, one of the most directionless animals there is. When you frighten a sheep, it runs, but it runs in a circle. So the, the carnivore just waits for it to tire out, fall down, and there's dinner, right? Talk about a happy meal. So Jesus, Jesus sets up this stage of three with this idea of repentance. And, and, and it puts a question in the hearer's mind. How is seeking after the lost thing and rejoicing over a collection, how is that connected to repentance? So we get the final and most well-known parable, part of this parable, in verses 11 through, 19, 11 through the end of the chapter. And I'm going to read 11 through 19 to start with. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And the, he, the father, divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Verse 11, a man had two sons. Rather than the, this being the parable of the prodigal son, I want to change your mindset right now, and I want you to think about this as the parable of the dysfunctional family. Because all three of these characters are, in the minds of the listeners, as you'll hear in a minute, are dysfunctional, are not operating by the, by the set of norms that they expect. See, three weeks ago, I mentioned to you that it's going to be necessary for us to take you back to the Middle East, to put you beside the Sea of Galilee, to take you to the first century. I know you're all familiar with Mediterranean food, right? I had lunch today at Kebab Express, great place. But are you familiar with Mediterranean culture? You see, the psychological center of Middle Eastern culture is not the individual. It's not the isolated ego as it is in our culture. We hear the prodigal son, and we focus on the son. And I don't know how many times I've heard it, heard it preached that man that says, well, you know, which, which son are you? You know, and so we identify individually with that. Not a bad thing to do, don't get me wrong. But the psychological center of the Middle Eastern family isn't the individual. It's the family first. And secondly, almost as important, it's the community. I don't know how many of you have seen the, the movie Avalon. 
It's an older movie about a family, of, about immigrants that come. That's kind of a hot topic right now. Immigrants, that, when they come to the United States, and, they, and they're finding their way in the United States culture, and they, they, they come upon this thing called Thanksgiving, you know, that we celebrate. And so they start incorporating Thanksgiving into their, into their culture, their family life. Uh, and, there's, they, and they have this tradition as a family, not till all the brothers come, you know, to the, to the house where they're having Thanksgiving. Not till all the brothers arrive are they able to cut the turkey. Cut the toiki, as he says it, right? But one Thanksgiving, one brother is just too late. And the kids are crying and moaning and complaining. So one of the other brothers cuts the turkey. And it ruins the family. It divides the brothers for the rest of their life. Because he cut the turkey. Because he just didn't do that in their family. Family's important. Shame and honor. The families honor amongst themselves. The families honor in community. In Middle Eastern culture, that's particularly true. Words like loyalty, propriety, conformity even, a good type of community conformity. Social structure is huge in the, in the, in the, in the culture of the Middle East. See, in a culture without media, without communication over long distances, you stayed close to home. People didn't move away. In a culture of landowners and land workers, there was a dependence on the wealthy, on them to be generous. They set the tone. They were to be the example. They were even to provide the entertainment. At harvest time, you know, the, the landowner, the wealthy, would, 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 would throw a party to eat food like you ate tonight. Like maybe once a year would they eat like that. I had a friend who, who got married, and, and he was from Chinatown. He actually grew up in Chinatown, San Francisco. And we went to his wedding, and it was outside in San Francisco, and we brought, like, a good, you know, non-Asian, Chinese, not knowing. We brought the gift to the wedding, and they're like, oh, no, you don't bring the gift to the wedding, you bring the gift to the reception. Okay, take it back to the car. We go to the reception, which is in downtown, second floor, Grant Street, you know, with all the lanterns and the ducks in the window. You know, you've been there. So we go to this wedding, and we bring the gift, and they're like, oh, the gift table's right over there. And I'm not kidding you. This is a restaurant full of people that are there for the wedding. Massive. Five times more people at the reception than were at the wedding. I'm serious. Okay? And there's a table about the size of the piano, card table, with like eight gifts on it. And I'm like, this doesn't add up. And so later, I asked the people at the table that I'd gotten to know, what's going on? And he said, at least in this particular subculture, he said, well, people don't give gifts. You're supposed to give the party. As the, as the parents of the bride, you're throwing a party for everybody. You give the gift, they come to the wedding. Fascinating. Different culture, different time. It was important for families to maintain order, peaceableness, solidarity with their neighbors. Getting along with your neighbors was crucial in the first century Middle East. Are you going to have conflicts in your family? Of course you're going to have conflicts, but keep it behind the fence. Deal with it inside. Don't let it spill over. Land was kept under close family control. Marriages were arranged specifically so that land would be kept in the family. We didn't want outside. They didn't want outside dynamics. But see, this family's in trouble. This is a family in big trouble. Jesus doesn't have to get far into this parable before his listeners are going, no way. Did he just say that? You see? See, the younger son, what does he say? He says, to, he says to his father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Well, younger, he's not in charge. He's not in line to take over. He's a younger of two sons. 
great to be a son. Sons are a blessing. Two sons are amazingly blessing in that culture. But you're not the oldest. Shut up. Get behind your brother. He demands, give me. No father, no, no words, give me. And not when you die, because that's the accepted culture. Father dies, land brothers, you know, now. I want it now. This son is saying to his father, I wish you were dead. Your stuff is worth more to me than you are. And I don't want to wait for the stuff, so give it to me now. The listeners, the villagers, because everyone listening to this story is going to immediately identify with the villagers. The listeners to Jesus' story are thinking, do something, Father. And what do they want him to do? Slap that kid across the face. Get back in line. So they, they're waiting for this father to respond to this impetuous younger son. But he doesn't slap him. What does he do? The father responds unbelievably, outlandishly, almost shamefully. He gives in. He divides his, his inheritance. He splits up his net worth. The older son gets two-thirds. The younger son gets one-third. Says he gives it to both of them. And how he does that with the land? Well, he sells it off for future on futures. So he sells it to somebody who's not going to get the land till the father dies. So he probably sold it on the cheap. And he actually gave it to the son. And, and the, the scriptures, I think, fairly clear that the son then liquidates it for cash so he can take off. Because the land isn't really what he wants. He doesn't want to stay in the village. An old Jewish proverb says that the, 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 a father that doesn't wait until his death to, to, to give his inheritance to children is a fool. So he liquidates a third of the assets and he goes to a far country. He disgraces the father. He disgraces the family. He disgraces the whole village. The older brother doesn't respond. He doesn't step in and try to stop the younger brother. That might have been expected by the hearers as well. There may have been a funeral for the younger brother. I think, wasn't it in the movie, um, If I Were a Rich Man? Help me out. What's it called? Filler on the Roof. There you go. Don't they have a funeral for the son? Or at least they say, he is, he is as dead to me, right? And that's kind of, when we get to later in the parable, we kind of think that may have happened. They may have actually had a funeral for that younger son. He is no, you know, no longer my son. The tension in the village is likely high. The listeners are thinking, does anyone know how to act in this story? Is anybody going to do the right? Is any, are they going to let this kid leave? The listeners are, this is just not, making no sense to them. The son leaves, the son squanders, the son is broke, the son becomes a slave, there's a famine, he's feeding the pigs. You know all that part of the story. That part we, we like as Westerners. So I'm not going to unpack that any much more than you need to. The son comes to his senses. Okay, now we start to see where repentance comes into this lostness and foundness, don't we? See, the father's hired hand, he says, they have more than I do now. Hired hand means day laborer. That doesn't mean somebody who lives in the nice house in the back and has a, has a full-time job with benefits. This is a guy who gets picked up at the village square every day to do odd jobs when they need to be done, day by day labor by labor, like the other parable that we studied this week, right? He wants to just go to the village and hope to work for his dad on a day-by-day -day basis, paycheck to paycheck. We jump to the open arms of the father, but we don't realize that, that, that this younger son may not have ever known whether he'd ever really get to see his father face to face. 
He's got a speech prepared, so he's hoping to. He's probably going to stand in the village square and hope for a day-by-day job. Well, the listeners, again, identifying with the villagers, they know what's coming. As that younger son walks to the village, he's going to be mocked. He's going to be ridiculed. He's going to be taunted. Dirty, poor, stinky. What, you, we weren't good enough for you. Your life wasn't good enough, huh? Had to sell your father's land. You disgrace us. You disgraced your father. Come crawling here back to us. You're going to take our day jobs away from us? It wasn't going to be pretty. The listeners to Jesus' parable, they're on edge now. What kind of whooping is this kid going to get? Because he's going to get a whooping. Is it going to come from the villagers? Is it going to come from the older brother? Is it going to come from the father? Who's going to teach this kid a lesson? Because that's got to be the point of the story, right? Albert Moeller, in his teaching on this, said parables are like hand grenades. Jesus pulls the pin and throws it onto the table. And at this moment, Jesus pulls another pin on the hand grenade and throws it on the table. Verses 20 through 24. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father felt compassion for him. The word has to do with splankna, the, the guts. He felt it in his guts. He's a lost coin. He's a wayward sheep. But see, in this story, there's no easy pick up the coin, put the sheep on your shoulders, walk back home. In this story, more has to be done than that. The seeker, the father, has to run. And you've heard taught before how this was a disgraceful thing for a Middle Eastern father to do. He had to lift up his robe and run. To show his ankles, to show his lower legs was disgraceful. I mean, have you ever seen Middle Eastern men that, that have immigrated to this area when they're out for a walk and their wife's usually like 20 yards behind them? Have you ever seen them walk? They kind of glide like this. You know, that's respectful. That's dignified. That's honoring. You don't run. But this father runs. Is he running to love on the son? Yes. But he's more running because of his love for the son. He's also protecting him from the wrath of the village. That's a likely overtone here. See, when he runs to meet him, again, these listeners, at first, first, when they first hear Jesus say he ran to meet him, again, they're, they're expecting that whooping, that beating, that putting him back in his place that, that this, this, this wayward, shameful son deserves. But he kisses him. He embraces him. The Greek word for kissing is a repetitive over and over and over and over and over again kind of kissing. When you study the Hebrew word for loving, the loving kindness of God is kesed. This is kesed. This is unmerited favor, right? Grace. An embrace. He kisses his mud matted hair, his pig stenched skin over and over again. The father doesn't signal punishment, banishment, or disapproval. He tells the village, I love this kid. But will they accept it? Will they be okay with this solution? Will they recognize this 
love? So the father's not done yet. What does he do? Bring the robe. Bring the ring. Bring the sandals. See, the robe identifies family belonging. Probably maybe had a crest on it. I don't know. The ring signifies family authority. You can make contracts for the family with the ring, right? It's a signet ring. The sandals indicate freedom. He's not a slave. He's free. Position in the community. He's telling this village, I love this kid, and you should love him too. See, the father is reconciling with his son, but he's also reconciling the family to the village. He's telling the village, I'm going to make this right. We're going to regain what was lost when he did this foolish thing. So how do you reconcile a family to a whole village? Throw a party. And not just any party. You throw a big party. You kill a fattened calf. Anyone know another word for fattened calf? How about veal, right? You know, we've learned ways with our animal husbandry to make animals tasty. So you have a great meal like tonight and you think nothing of it. You know, um, I, had, I had meat in Central Asia, in Kazakh, Kyrgyzstan. I tell you guys, it didn't taste like this. They didn't know how to fatten their calves. But this is a particular cow that has been given the best food, particularly fed, so that it will be the tastiest steaks ever. Be the best meal some people have had their whole life. That's the kind of party that he's throwing. It's prepared in advance. It's enough, for the whole, it's enough for the whole village. But again, this is a risky, costly gesture. The village still may not buy in. Most of the men will probably smell the barbecue and say, yeah, sure, what the heck, let's forgive the kid. You know? But maybe the, some of the more practical women will make us think twice. No, oh, I'm just kidding. But will they buy in? Because, you see, if they don't think the son should be communi- con- included in community life, they won't go in. If they think he should be considered dead to the community, they won't go to the party. They'll boycott the inaugura- the party, right? And they won't attend. Some of you got that. So point number three is, is, is the father's invitation to his mercy, to his grace. See, this is a resurrection party. Just like the shepherd with his friends and the woman with hers, rejoice with me for what I have found what was lost. Rejoice with me. RSVP, right? Respond, s'il vous plaît. Will you come to my party? Will you celebrate repentance? Will you celebrate mercy and grace, kesed? Will you thrill at this restoration? Will you be that kind of village? Will you be that kind of community? And in this last stage of this three-part parable, if it were to be like the other two, although more expansive, it would end here. Something lost, something found, big party, right? It's paralleling the other three. More detail, more, more characters, but, but another hand grenade. Out comes the pin, and out it goes on the table in verses 25 to 32. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He said to him, your brother's come. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. 
But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he, the father, said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting, it was necessary to celebrate and be glad. For this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Again, the villagers are thinking, the older brother would be expected to enter the party, to serve, to greet, to be the one who stood at the door. Each guest came in. Make sure they're happy. Make sure the food's cooked right. Watch the cooks. Make everything right. That was his job at a party like this. You see, we, we think of the, this, this parable and we want to set up the contrast as the older brother and the younger brother. But really what Jesus wants the listener to contrast is the villagers who went in to celebrate and the older brother who doesn't. That's the contrast. That's the point. That's the climax that he's driving at, at these grumbling Pharisees who think they're on the in and everyone else is on the out. See, the older brother isn't doing his job. He isn't going into the party. He stays outside. Very important. He's not going in. I'm not going to participate in this travesty. He won't accept the offer of reconciliation. He needs to be reconciled to the village too, but he doesn't see it. Instead, he seems to, to, to further the disgrace and the humiliation. He brings up the, the sins of the younger brother, even embellishes on him. Nowhere are we told about prostitutes, yet that's what he brings up. Is it true? Maybe. We don't know. But he's trying to drag that brother down. He seeks to start a coup almost, a revolt against the father and the younger brother. You don't know what you're doing. He doesn't deserve it. Your son. I'm the one who stayed. I'm the one who's worked. Pride, self-righteousness, insecurity. The father comes out, as Chuck pointed out when he brought this up last week in our study of Galatians here Sunday. The father comes out, just like the shepherd, just like the woman, searching for the older son, seeking him. And he says, my son, this is your brother. We're family. Come inside. Celebrate grace. Celebrate genuine repentance. The father is still being erratic and unbelievable. Sons aren't asked. Sons aren't entreated. Sons are ordered. You see, this isn't a tale of one rebellious son and one ungrateful son. This is a tale of two rebellious sons. One rebelled with his feet and left home. The other rebelled with his heart and stayed right there. The father asks him, will you rejoice? Will you come in? Will you celebrate the radical divine compassion of a loving, sovereign, seeking God? Will you repent of your pride, legalism, insecurity, meanness, your small-mindedness? Will you repent of easy believism, quick confession, church-going lostness? Will you come in? Will you taste his feast? Will you join with the village, the community, the community that celebrates lost and foundness? Will you celebrate not trying harder, not doing more, but just simply accepting the grace and mercy of a loving father? Will you? Will you come in? The Pharisees and scribes started this whole thing because they were line drawers, insiders. We're okay. I have an, I'm an okay 
religiosity. I'm okay. I'm good. They end up confronted with their character, the older brother, on the outside, sitting on a stoop, refusing to go in to rejoice with the father. I'm going to end with a quote from Joel Green. He said, The scribes and the Pharisees are invited to find themselves represented in the parable as the older brother. Responsible and obedient, it would seem, but failing in their solidarity with the redemptive purposes of God. Will they identify with God's will and join the repentant sinners at the table? That's what Jesus is ending with. It's interesting, and I don't understand the literary part of it a little bit, but each of these kind of, this, the, 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 the section on the younger brother has eight stanzas, and the section on the older brother has seven. It's almost like a limerick that doesn't quite end. There's, Jesus just leaves this parable hanging. How does it end right there? He says, it was fitting. He's dead. Respond. RSVP, older brother. What are you going to do? And we don't get the response. We don't get the response of the older brother. Jesus is saying then in that context to the Pharisees, are you going to accept God's Messiah? But how does the story end? The older brother reaches up, picks up a plank, and kills the father on the doorstep. Takes over the family. Those Pharisees put Jesus to the, to the cross. But in mercy and grace, God meant what they meant for bad, God meant for good, God planned for good. And in Acts, when Peter is preaching, he says that very same thing. This Jesus that you nailed has provided a way for you to know him, for you to come into the party through that, through that sacrifice, through that atonement. So they didn't come in. But will we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace, for your chesed, your loving kindness that seeks us because, because. Not because of anything good in us, not because of any, any way we respond or, or anything we generate inside of ourselves, but like that, that piece of silver on the floor, we're just laying there and you seek us out. Turn the house upside down to find us. May we, Lord, live inside, celebrating the grace of being found. May we look at those that don't know you and see them as unfound coins, wayward sheep. We don't know for sure how and when you'll find them, but but may we pray expectantly and love them dangerously and not push them aside as outsiders because of their lifestyle, because of the way they look, because of the whatever. May we be villagers who embrace your grace and seek to celebrate with you both now and for all eternity. As these men go to their tables, Lord, I pray that they would prayerfully consider how and in what way you would have them respond to your grace as one responds to an invitation to a banquet, to a feast, because that's what you've done. You've invited us to a feast that never ends. I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, go to your tables and have some great time.